Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Ron Carson. For those of you who are students of the industry, you may know Ron Carson is LPL's top-ranked advisor for the past 25 consecutive years, and his Carson Wealth and Carson Institutional Alliance businesses now oversee a whopping $9 billion of AUA. In addition, he's the founder of Peak Advisor Alliance and the author of several books for financial advisors. But as you've now learned from the first episode of the podcast, my goal here is not just to talk about successful advisors and their successful businesses today, but what it took for them to get here. And Ron's story is fascinating. He started in the business in the 80s, straight out of college, cold calling and cold knocking on farmers' doors in the Midwest where he grew up. And Ron's an introvert which means, not surprisingly, selling by cold calling didn't go very well. And after six years, he still couldn't even break $30,000 of gross production after six years. And so on the podcast, you'll hear Ron share the breakthrough moment that turned it all around for him, just literally catapulting his business forward from barely $30,000 of production after six years to a million dollars of production just two years later when he became LPL's top producing rep, a title he has never relinquished since, as his business just continues to grow and grow. Be certain to listen to the end as well, where Ron shares his definition of what success and having true wealth really means, and what to him he's still building towards and why he's not done growing yet. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Ron Carson. Welcome, Ron Carson, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Glad to be here. I'm excited to have you on because I've actually never told you this story, but I have a kind of a unique connection indirectly to you. So I started in the advisory business, uh, gosh, what was it now? About 16 or 17 years ago. And the second job I had, I worked at a a broker dealer firm that did a lot of seminar marketing and and event marketing and client events. Okay. They were really big into the events. And they were they were huge fans of your work and a lot of your books. And we had this uh system where when we were doing client events, we would put these little dots on people's name badges, <laughs> whether they were a client or a prospect. Yeah. And like I was 22 years old and, and like just trying to figure out who all these people are at a client event. And it, like, it was like, that's freaking brilliant. That's amazing. <laughs> where do you come up with something like that? Like, I read it in Ron Carson's book. <laughs> And that, like that was my first awareness of of Ron Carson and the the awesomeness that is systematizing things that you do with your clients. Yeah, you know it's funny you bring that up, Michael. I just today came from our holiday brunch. We had all a bunch of our clients there, and to this day, the system's still in use. I mean, there's a little bitty tick mark on the upper left hand corner. There's a lot going on with the name tag that they would never notice. But if their birthday was in the last 30 days, it's there. If it's on the right, it was 
coming up in the next 30. And if it happens to be their birthday, there's a little tick mark right on it. But I'd always, I always know whose actual birthday it is if there is a birthday. But I can always say, and as I was going through breakfast this morning, hey, how was your birthday? You just had one, I know. Or I know you got one coming up. It just takes a second to pick that up. And people... Even they've been clients of mine for 25 years and they'll say, how do you remember that stuff? And I just chuckle to myself. So, so, so just how do you do it? Like you just literally put like a little, a little mark, a little dot, you know, from a couple feet away, you wouldn't even notice it. But when you know to look for it, like that's, that's your indicator, depending on where it is. Like, did you, did you once like deal cards in Vegas and learn about marked cards and like that was your inspiration. I mean where where does that idea come from of of let's let's mark people's name tags and and not even just for sort of the the who they are angle, but I mean to me it's an interesting one when you do it not just of uh, you know are they a client or a prospect kind of thing, but something like what you just said, you know, let's let's mark of recent birthday or upcoming birthday because people love to talk about that stuff and it feels awesome that you can remember or reflect that back to them and they're never going to realize that one of those random little dots on their name tag means that yeah it looks like a slight it looks like a slight imperfection and it really came from me brainstorm i remember when i at one point i had an entire team of two other people it was me and and two people michelle and susan and we were just like, how can we, and it was a lot of stuff. And, and I was like, well, why don't we just start? I said, just like when people mark cards, you know, let's mark the name tag, you know, to give us some ideas. And so we perfected it and we changed colors and we did some different things. And no one ever, ever goes, hey, it looks like there's some sort of system here because nobody notices that stuff. And, and if you've got to like have a sheet, oh, I see, and you're looking at a sheet of paper, I see it's your birthday. It takes all the specialness away. We as humans, we want to feel special. We want to be recognized. And it was just one of those little things that really made a big difference in my career. So I just feel like next time I, I go to an event with you, I'm going to be like watching my my name badge for a hanging pad (laughs) off of it. Like, what is that? What does that mean? What is that saying about me? So you, you've had a, a pretty amazing career doing this for a while. So to start, I suspect most people are listening are probably familiar with you or at least have, have heard the name and have seen headlines. But can you just paint a little bit of a picture for us? Like, tell us about the the Carson financial advising business as it exists today. So today, Michael, we have – so you don't want any history of how I got to this point? Well, we're gonna go. We're gonna go there in a moment. Okay. You know, one of the themes to the podcast here is I feel like there's a lot of we we tend to see successful people with with this lens of like I wasn't aware of them until I was, and when I was, like they're 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 brilliant, and it's this overnight success thing because I just became aware of them, and no one sees all the hard work that went in leading up to that, and so that's really what I want to ultimately I think we're going to talk about for most yeah, podcasts here is kind of how you got there, but let's at least start with where you are today and make sure we're all on the same page about this, you know, this brief overnight success you've had over the past 33 years. So we have, you're right. It was an overnight success that took 30 some years to do, but you know, we have a hundred and I think 45 stakeholders and I call it, we don't use the term by the way, staff or employees. I find it a little demeaning. We only talk about internal stakeholders, associates and partners. No one works for anybody. We all work together and it's just a cultural thing, but we're, we're under 150, above 140. I'm not quite sure where we're at today because we're, we're growing fairly rapidly. We have uh, 44 partner offices around the country. 
We're just north of $9 billion in AUA. We, have a, we also have a practice consulting group, which we consult with about 1,100 offices. We have nine executive business coaches that work in that, in that business. And it's, you know, it's, it's all started uh, and, and run. You know, it's really a, a hub and spoke. If you think about most of the services are provided out of Omaha, Nebraska, to our satellite locations around the country. So I have a couple of questions there. So you talked about a, about 140 to 150 stakeholders that are, are working with the firm in various capacity, about $9 billion of, of AUA. So I noticed you, you, you did say AUA and not AUM. So what is there a distinction there in terms of kind of how you operate the business or the billing model of the business yeah. that, that you, you measure primarily off of AUA instead of AUM? That's a good question, Michael, because I feel like a lot of people, what I've learned in this business is very rarely do people tell the truth about numbers, you, at least when they're talking to each other. Obviously, yes, when they do I'm regulatory not, filing, yeah. it's different because a lot because of times- otherwise the SEC shuts you down for that right, or, or at least right. find, finds you very unpleasantly. But we'll be talking to a partner. We have a joke internally is cut it in half twice and you'll get to the right number, right? So our number is a conservative number. We actually went through an SEC audit two years ago and the SEC- complained that we understated our AUM by about a half a billion dollars. Now, think of that, understated it, because we are so conservative about what we place in that AUM bucket that we have to have discretion, we have to custody the assets, you know, and so there's, there's some little bit of slight different interpretations about that. And so we have, right now, we have about four and a half billion of statutory AUM, and then anything else that we're getting a fee on, but we don't have custody of, or we don't have discretion on, we put that into the AUA category. Some people disagree and put it all in the AUM category. So that could be non-managed assets, that could be outside 401ks. Hey, I'm giving you advice on this as part of your uh, comprehensive financial plan, but it's not my regulatory AUM because I don't have discretionary management over your outside 401k, even though I'm giving you advice on it, that that kind of stuff. That's right. Or, or I don't custody it. I don't have, I don't have discretion and custody. Yeah. So 4.5 billion or so of uh, you know, statutory AUM, 9 billion of AUA. So how many how many clients is this dispersed across roughly? I mean, is your is your typical client like a mass affluent couple with a half million dollars? Is it like a business owner with a couple million? Are you in the ultra high net worth space where it's like, oh no, actually I only have 27 clients. It's just there 4.5 billion dollars across them. What is, what is that client base look like? Okay, so I hate to not have an answer to a question because I don't know exactly. But here's what I can tell you is that we're actually, and I think we're a little unique in this regard, Michael. Three years ago, we had a million-dollar minimum. And last year, and by the way, that's one of the big mistakes I made. Early on, I had to have a minimum because I only had a certain amount of capacity. But I really missed the boat on not moving, not being a fast follower and realizing that we needed to embrace technology quicker to provide meaningful solutions to those that didn't have a lot of money yet. And and so we were last year our minimum was a hundred thousand. In two thousand seventeen, virtually our minimum will be zero because we're gonna have a way to engage with us that we're still 
you know, figuring out the pricing on. So we literally will be able to engage with people that have no assets but just need planning. But also on the opposite end of the spectrum, we've got very sophisticated solutions. So if you think about it, we've actually gone down market and up market at the same time. We have we have three bona fide billionaires that we're the primary advisor on. And so you know, you can think about it is that at a time, I would say we're in the middle class millionaire. If you looked at most of our clients, they would have two to $3 million with us. Now we have clients that have $300 million with us and we have those that have $100,000 with us. Okay. So that would essentially be, I guess to use the, the term du jour, so a, a digital advice offering. I mean, is this going to be working with clients virtually or just you're going to try to use technology more and every advisor at a 44 partner offices is going to take anyone that comes in all the way down to the bottom of the asset scale because you just think you can do that effectively in the long run with technology efficiencies. So great question. That's an internal debate we're having as we speak. Mm-hmm. I actually had a meeting on it this morning and my vision, and I'm not a, I don't run this as a dictatorship. I used to, but I don't anymore. And that's again, one of my many failures that I had in my life. My vision is that a client comes to us, a prospect, and if they ch- so choose that they can pick one of three offerings right off our digital marketing hub, they could engage at a high level, at a mid-level, or at a 100% digital, no advisor level if they so choose. So I think I need to give choice and I need to let people make that choice, open accounts and everything online. Everything happened whether it's a digital or it's a hybrid type solution that we're providing. My next, what I think is innovative idea is I want the client to be able to move from any one of those three offerings and the interval of when they could move is probably going to be once a year that they, when they sit down and they have that annual review of the client saying, you know, I'd really like to have a lot more advice or I need help. Or by the way, I don't think that the, the personal advice, I'm paying a premium for it. I think I'd be happy having everything done through email or done through digitally. But I don't want to penalize a client for making that decision. Of course, the pricing structure will be different. But I'd like for, for them to be able to port everything we do to any one of those three ways of engaging with us without having to sell anything or transact anything or change anything or having any friction in that change. And I think I want to empower people to have ultimate choice and let let the value of the value proposition and what we're charging for that stand on its own and give the power to the consumer to dictate what they're willing to pay and how much human action, because it's really human interaction that is going to cost a premium. And I mean, to me, at some level, all, all that really is, and I don't mean to be belittling at all, but like, it's basically a client segmentation strategy, right? I mean, in the past, we've segmented people like, here's what I do for my super duper rich clients, and here's what I do for my moderate clients, and then here's the little bit of stuff I do for my, my C-level clients. Like, we, we've we segmented by wealth, and, and to uh. me... Yeah, you know, I feel like what you're talking about is another version of segmentation. Not really, just, Michael. Think of this: it's we're going to segment them by what they want. Like, no, we're going to segment by who likes digital and who likes in person. No, we hear. Think of the power of that. For the first time in history, over the last few years, the buyer has more information than the seller. Truly, does because 
it used to be I had all the information or I'd call people stock tips or whatever. I had all the power because I had all the information. Now they have more information because when they're making that decision, they know their situation better than I can know it, even if I spend hours with them. And they know what's available out there. So it's really when I used to segment clients, I had the ability to do that. But now I'm giving the consumer the power to segment us because see, they get to choose. They could have $50 million and say, you know, it's not worth X for what I'm getting from Carson. I want to, I'm happy just to move this stuff to the, to the lowest level of engagement because we did all this heavy lifting five years ago and I paid a premium for that, but I'm not seeing the value add anymore. And I'd like to really transition to the opposite end of the spectrum. So we're really given the power to the consumer to segment the advisor the way we used to segment the client. So I've had this conversation with more than one advisor over the years and it, it I feel like it almost always ends out at the same place, either, either, either stated or unstated. Are you afraid that a bunch of your clients are just going to downshift themselves and you're going to like watch a bunch of revenue vanish because you cannibalize your own business with a, with a lower price digital offering? Is that a, is that a fear? You don't care? Yeah, no, it's creative destruction, right? The creative destructive process because we're creating something new and it can be painful to go through that. But here's what I believe is ultimately you know, I, my dad had a saying growing up, if it's not broken, break it. I think the model's a little broken right now. And if I'm not doing this for the benefit of the consumer, the market's going to do it anyway. So I would rather have, in a way, I, I benefit so from can, this because I do live- it to yourself or you can let the rest of the world do it to you. So you may as well do it yourself. Yes. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. And I live to fight another day because maybe there will be complexity in estate planning or tax planning, or there'll be a market event where all of a sudden those clients said, you know, I'd really like to move back up because I want to have more interaction with your team, personal interaction, because of there's a lot of uncertainty, there's uncertainty in their life that they want to re-engage at a higher level. So yeah, do it to yourself because the market is going to do it to you. So take us back now. So we've got this sense of where the the business is today, but you've been doing this for a long time. So what when did you get started? Like were you in the business straight out of college and and what did that look like as you were coming into the industry? So Michael, I grew up on a farm about an hour north of here in Tecama, Nebraska, which by the way, Tecama is one of the only towns in the nation that there is no other town named Tecama. I just learned that today, by the way. And we were farmers. And uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, my dad looked at me and said, I hope you're not planning on coming back to the farm because there's really, we can barely afford to make a living for your mother and I and your sister. Basically, you're, you know, better go find something else to do. And it was tough. I mean, farming was tough in those days. And I was sitting in the library during study hall and Money Magazine had the top businesses and professions for the future. And right at the top of the list, it said, becoming a certified financial planner. And I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. I'd love to tell people that I had all of this research and I spent all of this time. It was really that. It's like, you know, 
I never get to wear a suit and tie. I never get to dress up. All the stuff that I, you know, thought I would love to do. I dreamed about it because I had grease and oil and grungy and dirty growing up on the farm, which I love, by the way. And I thought, gosh, I could wear a suit and tie. So I went down. I was recruited to go play football for Nebraska. I was injured my first year. And I was going to be redshirted because of the injury. And I literally started cold calling out of my college dorm room in 1983. And that's when my business was born. That's interesting. So like Money Magazine talking about CFPs in 83, I guess like 82 or 81 when you're still in high school. 81. was, was Was the trigger. And regular, there weren't a lot of CFPs yet even at the time. That was fairly early on. We only did the first class in 1973. So- Say the least, you were you were early to the financial planning world. So, and I guess that's an interesting distinction. I feel like a lot of folks who came into the business in the eighties. I mean, this was the heyday of Wall Street stockbroker greed is good. So you you didn't you didn't come in on that side, or did you ultimately end out there because the only place to get a job was a was a wirehouse at the end of the day? I, you know, I was so oblivious to all of that. I mean we we didn't have a lot growing up. I didn't even. I really didn't comprehend the stock market and all that. I mean, I grew up in a really small farm community and we worked all the time. Um, so I didn't even really get this other world out there. And uh, I didn't even know until I was an advisor for probably a good 10 years, really, that, that the wirehouses looked down on independent advisors. So you were independent from day one. From day one, I was with a really small broker dealer that that sponsored me to get my license called State Bond out of Newell, Minnesota. And then I was with I was I was like the first advisor ever to Securities America. And uh and then later on I ended up with LPL. And, and, you know, and, and I, I virtually do no brokerage business today at all. It's 99.9% advisory and has been for a decade. But yeah, that's, that's how it all started. So what were you doing from day one when you're cold calling? So I'm trying to think 83. Like this is, this is the heyday of selling limited partnerships. This is even kind of early to mutual funds, still a lot of stock selling. <laughs> like what, what were you... What were you doing for people? Or were you like, I'm, I'm charging people $1,000 for a comprehensive financial plan? Out of yeah. The so I wasn't – so I was I, – I read about the CFP. I didn't start this – I didn't actually get my CFP until I think it was 91. It was either 90 or 91. Yeah, to when make I, sure you could survive this cold calling stuff well, first. Well, <laughs> I, I, I read the piece and it's like, I, you know, it was a lot easier just to get my, my securities license. Um, but I sold mutual funds – in my very first, I remember I went to Boston. MFS had me out there. I was virtually doing no business. I remember just being in awe because I had never been. I mean, my town, my the main town that we would go for fun on a Saturday night was was like twelve hundred people, <laughs> and so you know I was in Boston, Massachusetts, and I was just like wow. And I would go out and I would tell people. You know, this is a great way, a way to be diversified. And in those days too, Michael, I would I would sit down at the kitchen table with farmers. Because I could talk farming, they trusted me. And I would sit there for hours and have coffee with them. 
and I would eat rolls or whatever. Sometimes I'd still be there for lunch, believe it or not. And they would many times by the t- it would take a meeting or two or three that they would bring these statements out and they would be Pioneer was big here, Invesco was big in this part of the country. And they didn't even know how to figure out their statements. The fact that I could take the share, because they never put the value on the statements in those days. So if I could take the no, share they, price they times the, the number price. and tell them what it was worth, this sounds crazy. I was shocked. It's like, that was a value add that I could tell them what their statements were worth. And a lot of times they were getting no service from an advisor. So I could put my name, become the servicing advisor on it and it was amazing what a little bit of service even in those days would do to grow the business. And then you just start gathering 12B1 trails as you became servicing broker on all these accounts. And, and that was how the, the revenue got going. Yeah, but you. there really weren't. That's even pre 12B1 fees, believe it or not. I mean, 12B1 uh, so, fees uh, came along later. So I that was, was the whole problem. Like someone sold it for what was what well, back then a, a seven or 8% upfront mutual fund commission and they were gone. They were on to the next. No one ever called that far. Yeah, again. They were, it was either a lot of them were eight and a half or 10% because remember the old contractual plans, they could actually charge a 10% commission. And as long as they were, they said they were going to put so much money in over so many periods of time, it just couldn't exceed, I think, 9% on average in those days. And so there wasn't another way of doing it. I was selling mutual funds. They would add money to it. I would get paid a commission. And I remember when Todd Robinson, who was really, him and Jim Putnam were truly the visionaries for LPL in its heyday. He, I, re, I was in Hawaii at a meeting and he said, we're going to come out with this thing called SAM. It was strategic asset management. And you're going to get to not charge your clients commissions you're going to get, get to give them an advice and charge a fee instead. And you won't make as much in the short run. But if you do a good job for your client, they'll do better and you'll do better because you both have an economic interest in staying engaged in the relationship. I remember coming back and telling my wife, the coolest thing ever was just unveiled today. And nobody else in the room thought it was neat. They thought Todd was crazy. It's like, who on earth is going to pay an ongoing fee? And that was, you know, I was very, very early in, in really embracing the, you know, the advisory, the advisory model and not having that conflict of commissions. So what was it for you that drove you that direction? Like, did you did you feel icky about commissions and want to get away with it or get away from it? Or were you just looking saying like, no, I can do the math over what this business can be in 10 or 20 years. Recurring revenue may hurt now. Cause I mean, it, it's a yeah. big step when you go from an 8% upfront to a 1% yeah. advisory fee. Like, did you just have this vision of in the long run, here's what it's going to be? Or, or were you coming at it from some other angle to, to make that change? Well, I would love to tell you that I had some aversion to commissions, but I had zero. I mean, I love commissions. Um, but what I didn't like about it was if I was recommending to a client that they make a change, it made me f- wonder if they wondered why was the change being recommended? Was it for my benefit or their benefit? And by having no additional compensation for making a change, I felt it was a pure way to really have a healthier relationship with a client. And I was actually worried about it because it's like, you know, that's going to be hard, but I believe that more people will do business with me 
with that better alignment of interest than the old commissionable model. And it was true. People did like it. So did you make like a hard left turn? It's like, I'm all in on this SAM program. We're going advisory fees. Off we go. Or was this still a like a weaning down of let's build, let's start building some assets in this advisory program. But, uh, you know, I got family and mouths to feed. So I still have to do some commission business and you, and you transition more gradually. Yeah. I gave the client the choice. So I really laid it out there and said, you know, this is a way most of the industry does business. Here's a way that my company allows me to work with you. And I would say some were, you know, they were comfortable. They'd paid commissions in the past and that was better. And others were more comfortable with the advisory fee. One of the problems I ran into though is I, sometimes I have an advisor come in behind me and he would tell the client because he didn't get it. In those days, it was all load wave. So you would have an A share that they weren't paying the load on and you're getting your advisory fee and they would tell them, oh my gosh, you paid a commission. And he's charging an advisory fee. And the client really didn't know, right? He says, well, I don't think I did. And so I, I did spend a lot of time having to re-educate clients or go back and show them that they didn't pay both. Because uh, the, this whole world that we've got today of institutional class shares for advisory accounts, that, that wasn't around back then. You had to make sure your broker dealer gave you, you know, did the appropriate load waiving when they put the share into the advisory account? They did. And they always did because it was easy because it was inside the, the advisory model on those trades. It wouldn't even, it would kick it back out. So I really had zero issues with that. So I, I wasn't having to double check to make sure the trade was placed right. But I did have to continuously re-educate some of my clients about how they were paying me. So when did you so this was an LPL. So you were you were already at LPL when you made this transition. You'd moved on from state bond at that point. Yes, from Securities America at that point. Okay. Yes. So so when was that transition? Like when it, when had you already gotten to LPL? I got to LPL in January of eighty nine. January of it. So you were kind of bouncing around a few BDs for the first six years or so, got to LPL in eighty nine and have been parked there since. So new, so this is an interesting story. So new Ohm, the guy that owned the small broker dealer died. And so they, they were really small and it's like, man, they're not going to be able to stay. I don't even know if they're going to be able to stay in business. And so securities America, I actually also sold life insurance in those days, Michael. So I had a insurance contract with Amoco life and security national life. And the, there's a guy by the name of Steve Wild and George Grogan who started Securities America. And then there was a lady by the name of Janine Jones, who's still at Securities America, a wonderful lady, by the way, who's now Janine Wertheim. And her and I, I mean, you'd have to ask her, right? if I wasn't rep number one, I might have been rep number two. And George and Steve, because they, they didn't even think Securities America was going to amount to be anything. It was something they, they, they would start so their insurance agents could do some securities business. Well, when they learned I had this general agents contract with Security National, they didn't like it because they had the Amoco policy or the contract. They asked me to leave. So... <laughs> But I was. So you, I, so you were me. like the first person on the Securities America platform, yeah. and then the first person to get kicked off the Securities yes. America platform. Yes. If you ever do, you know who Janine Wertheim is over there, Michael? 
Uh, I think we crossed paths at a conference. One of these days, you have to say, Carson said this. Is that really true? Because they would laugh. They're like, we really got rid of, you know, what would have been a really good uh, advisor for the firm. But anyways, and it turns out Securities America was a huge hit. They sold it to Ameriprise, and you know the rest of the story. So by the time you got to LPL, I mean, were you still – like, was it hard to find a broker deal? I mean, were you a – were you a good-sized producer by then, or were you still struggling to get by five or six years into the business? I mean, how how was it going over those first couple of years? So obviously, we could see where it is now. I'm sure you're doing okay at four or five billion. No, I was struggling really hard. I mean i I thought about quitting the business. I mean, it was. I mean, I lost my I lost my drive. I was on the road all the time, Michael. The first year. In the business, I put 56,000 miles on my car. Think of that, 56,000, that's a, over 1,000 miles a week. And I lost my driver's license for speeding tickets. In Nebraska, you're allowed 12 points. By the time they caught up to me, I had 16 points on my license. I got pulled over by the same patrolman twice in one day, one of them for going 104 miles an hour out in the western part of Nebraska because I was trying to get to my next appointment. A lot of times people wouldn't even let me in because I was cold calling out of a phone book. I mean, I would drive six hours for a mutual fund sale that would pay me $180. And that's really where there was a moment in my life where I said, I've got to to think of a different way of approaching this business because I would spend hours upon hours with people. I'd get a little bit of money to invest, but I was not. LPL had to make a special exception for me. And maybe that's why Securities America didn't care. I was doing a little bit of life insurance business, a, a lot less securities business. And that's that's really where a lot of the, the processes and the systems and love affair marketing and passion prospecting, all these terms came purely out of my need to survive and make a living. And I didn't have you know, a farm to go back to. And, you know, I had a, I had a wife that I needed. I didn't have any kids at that point, but I mean, it was lean and mean. Jeannie and I had our favorite thing to eat at night was either rice, boxed rice with, uh, with mushrooms in it or a bag of nachos that we put cheese and hamburger on. I mean, that's, we had that like five nights a week because we were, we didn't have any money. So is it was it the kind of the sales ideas that you started doing? Or are you just a extroverted salesperson type dude that just kept knocking on doors and making cold calls until you got there and that was your drive? Like how do you how do you work through that? You know, it was early on it was just hard. That's one great thing growing up on a farm is you know, sometimes you work all the time and you don't raise a crop or you don't you know, you, you, you're always faced with some disappointment or you raise a crop and the prices aren't there. And I watched my parents struggle with that. They never, we never seemed to ever get ahead. There was always constant pressure, but they continued to work their tails off all of the time. And I, I just, Hey, if I work hard, eventually things will work out. I really believe that. And I am, you mentioned, you know, you said extrovert, I'm an introvert. So it's out of my comfort zone to, you're an- you're an introvert. I'm absolutely. I think that's something. So yeah, nine nine billion AUA of an, of an introvert. So so what's that? So what's that like doing cold calling as a trying to survive as an introvert? It, it makes it more difficult. Let me tell you, it makes <laughs> it more difficult. Yeah, I mean to 
to make extra money to tell you how much, I mean, I used to dread on weekends, my mom made me a Santa Claus outfit and I would go play Santa Claus for kids at parties and get paid 50 or a hundred dollars. And you talk about being uncomfortable and having to be jolly and remember the kids' names and all of that stuff. And I just be physically and mentally exhausted because it was so my favorite thing to do, even to this day. And I'm even looking forward to tonight. We're going to have a big snowstorm here in Omaha is go home, sit in front of the fire, have a glass of wine and read a book. That's like my nirvana. It's not today at the holiday brunch. It's work. You know, being with close friends and a close network of people is, uh, is what I love. So it's almost, it's ironic that, that, that I was able to be, have some degree of success in this business. So you were an introvert doing cold calling and cold knocking and had a side gig as a Santa Claus to yep. keep food on the table. <laughs> That's true. Oh, can I add one thing to that? And I'm also an auction. I'm also an auctioneer, Michael. So I'd also do, I would take people's junk and I would sell it in my little auction consignment house that I had. So you're grinding hard through the 80s and barely, you know, and and nacho food when you can manage it. So was there some point when everything started to turn and shift for you? I mean, six years of grinding just to get to the point where LPL will be gracious enough to make an exception to take this crazy introverted kid who got kicked off of another broker dealer platform, but look accommodation for you. Like, did it turn at some point or was it just, you gr- you did enough grinding long enough that eventually the math started adding up. Okay. And, and the, the living got decent. Yeah. So that year, so Jim Putnam still laughs about it and I'm still in contact with Jim. Who's just, by the way, him and Todd really just made LPL what it was in those days. But we laughed later on when I, had more success. He says, yeah, I was on the committee and there was a guy by the name of Garth Trelizzi, who was a recruiter for them, who said, this guy's going to be a good advisor, one of our bigger advisors someday. And they said, yeah, but he's only, he only did $29,000 in total revenue. That was it. And was that your number? Was that your number? That was my number. It was just under 30, 20, just under 30,000. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. Gross. After that was gross. That's before I paid any of my my fuel, my expenses. my expenses, or any of that stuff. Yeah, okay. I had one suit and two ties and two shirts. Yeah, and so the, there was a moment I'll never forget it as long as I live. And I occasionally drive by the spot in Omaha. I was getting ready. It was the end of the week. I'd made absolutely no sales. I was. It was a hot August day, and I'm watching a guy jackhammer cement out of the median. And he's sitting there and he's in really good shape. By now, you know, I'm working all the time. I was always in pretty good shape playing football. I'd put on some weight. I wasn't feeling good about myself. My suit was feeling tight. I was dead ass broke. And I looked at that guy and I'm going, that guy doesn't have a worry in the world. When he gets home tonight, he gets to take a shower. He gets to kick back, drink a cold beer. And he got paid today. And I envied him. I literally envied that moment because that's how miserable I was. And needing to just hear a friendly voice, I went back to my office, which really wasn't much of an office, but and I called a handful of clients just to check in. I actually 
remember the reaction when they said, you just called just to say hi. No, what I really should have said is I am so dejected and so down. I just needed to hear a friendly voice on the other end. But I realized how appreciative they were because I had never contacted any of my clients unless there was something I wanted them to do or if there was something in it for me. I never proactively reached out. And I called everybody I could get a hold of that day, and everybody had a similar reaction. And I said, I didn't need anything. I just called to see what you were doing, check in. Is there anything I can do for you? And that's where love affair marketing, a term that I coined and started teaching, it's like make deposits. Now, people talk about it today, but no one had taught me or showed me or said to do any of this stuff. And so when I started doing it, I started getting more business. I started getting referrals. And the more business and referrals I had, the more I did it, and the more business and referrals I had. And it was just positive, virtuous cycle that really put me on this path to like, how can I learn more about the client? How can I do more things for them? How can I systematize it? How can I have events? How can I have appreciation events? How can I have passion processing events? And it just continued to grow. And the more of that I did the more success I had based on the relationship and the trust I built with the client. So can you define this for us a little bit more, The this label you use, love affair marketing? So love affair marketing is really about emotional reciprocity. You know, when someone does something nice for you, you immediately want to think, what can I do to reciprocate? And so love affair marketing was a random call. Love affair marketing was calling them on their birthday or love affair marketing was calling them on their wedding anniversary, calling them on the anniversary when they became a client of mine was, you know, sending them something, doing something, knowing what their interests were and sending them an article or a book or going out of your way to help solve a solution. Hey, I need a new insurance agent for my car and making a recommendation, but just can you continuously looking for ways to do, even if it was minor, to reach out and make a deposit in that relationship bucket. And people wanted to reciprocate back. And they did many fold of what I was able to reciprocate out. Well, and, and I know now we actually have a growing base of research around this. I know uh, Robert Cialdini does a lot of research on influence persuasion. I mean, he calls this the, the reciprocity rule that you know, that we've now studied pretty well. Like when you do something nice for someone else, even if they didn't ask for it, we get something nice. We we often feel compelled to do something nice for the person in, in return. It's just, you know, I guess how we're wired as social animals to to survive on the earth. But you you can engage that by just proactively trying to do nice things for people, for prospects, for clients, not because you needed to or required the contact to them simply because you're making deposits into that relationship bank and it and at some point it bears some some fruit. Yeah, by the way, I think Cialdini's work and I know Cialdini and I've actually had him speak on several occasions at our Excel meeting. And he is if anybody listening to this has not read his books, I strongly recommend it. He if I would have had his stuff back then, I wouldn't have had that, you know, six years of of no success because this, and we're humans. And when you use this though, when you use the law of reciprocity, you only use it because it does influence people. So hopefully you're influencing them to do business with you and your model's really good because I just believe this stuff is so powerful that in the wrong hands, you can influence people 
to, to, to commit financial suicide as well if you're not careful. It's the double-edged sword, right? I, someone had, had used a great line once I heard you when you, you know, when you use those techniques in your interests, it's manipulation. When you use it in their interests, it's positive persuasion. So you know, use use the force for good and not for evil. <laughs> That's you know, here's my definition of that. I say you're either manipulating or persuading. Manipulation is you're causing someone to take an action that it's only in your benefit for them to take that action. Persuasion is causing someone to take an action where you know they're better off for having taken that action. And then persuasion is ethical because you're helping people make a good choice. So, and we'll make sure we get a copy of that in the show notes as well for people who want to check it out. I, I've long said uh, Cialdini's book on uh, influence and persuasion has been one of the, the big influencers for me as well, no, no pun intended. So we'll have that in the show notes for anyone who's listening, www.kitsis.com slash two. So that's www.kitsis.com slash the number two, because we're here on the second episode of Financial Advisor Success Podcast, and you can get a copy of the book. We'll give a link for it. So you have this breakthrough moment, Ron. You're you're selling or you're trying to sell and selling's maybe kicking your ass a little as it does to a lot of us. And you have this breakthrough that you call some clients and they're so freaking amazed to actually hear from you because normally, sadly, that's not what we do as salespeople. You call the new prospects, not the existing clients. They're so happy to hear from you that they're engaging with you. So you call more of them and you have this breakthrough of like, if I can do this love affair marketing and do these positive things for my clients. I can do it to drive referrals and drive more activity and, and get business going. And I mean, was it basically like the business took a left turn at that point and the hockey stick of growth began and and like, and you were off and running in the nineties with this marketing style? It did. I mean, the business went from virtually nothing to in two years, I was doing a million dollars of production, believe it or not. I mean, it was... Wow. So you went from $30,000 of production in six years to a million dollars of production just a couple years later. And two, two years later and built out and built out all of these processes in order to support it. And it was... I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't believe when I would tell people about it that they weren't doing it. Or even when I would tell them about it and see them later, they still weren't doing it. It's like, I just found, you know, the Holy Grail and I want you to experience it. But I, a lot of people just weren't willing to spend the time and they were always looking for the next thing versus taking care of the things they had. Those were their existing clients. And so is, is this part of why the, the SAM program around doing advisory fees started resonating with you more as well? Were you already in this mode of, you know, geez, I'm suing so much for my existing clients on an ongoing basis because I'm putting deposits into the relationship bank. Like these people are sticking with me for a long time. I may as well run an advisory business and build an annuity for myself along the way. Or, or was it not, not that connected? Yeah, it really wasn't that. I mean, it really was the, I removed the conflict of, why is he making this recommendation? Is it for his best interest or my best interest? And I love that. And it wasn't lost on me that if I didn't take care of the client, this was a bad economic thing for me. But if I did take care of the client, I was way better off if I were going to keep the client for 20 years. And I really felt the way I was running my business that I was going to keep the client. And the other thing that excited me, Michael, and as I, I was in this room in 94, with other big advisors 
And they all thought it was a bad idea. And then I knew it was a great idea because they were stuck <laughs> on continuing to defend what they know versus embracing the unknown and the change in our business. In those days, things, things moved very slowly, unlike today. I mean, the speed of which change is happening, which is a whole other topic, by the way. I think most advisors are they were on the eve of the most massive disruption in our, I don't think it's just financial services. I think it's all over the place. And most advisors aren't prepared. They're like that group in 94 that didn't think advisory was going to be anything. And they're still going to be able to sell high commission products to people. And most advisors are rearranging the furniture in their house and their house is on fire and they don't even know it's on fire. I mean, that's how disruptive, but that's also how much opportunity there is for advisors if they're willing to change the way they approach the business. So tell me about the transition then that happened over the next couple of years from there. So you you go from six years of great job, honey, I almost broke $30,000 of gross production this year to two years later, you come almost like great news, honey, we 30X'd that and we cleared a million. So like, what happens to you in that environment, right? I mean, that that's basically the equivalent of a of a sudden money kind of event for a lot of people, right? Like we're we're doing leftover nachos for years and years, and then all of a sudden we're doing a million dollars of GDC in in the early 1990s. So, what do you do with all that money? Did it did it change your lifestyle? Did it change what you were doing? Did you just keep living on thirty grand and plow it all back into the business? Yeah, no, great. So, by the way, my wife was working for Mutual of Omaha. And she was making nine thousand a year, so it wasn't just thirty. We had her nine thousand to okay. put into the pot too. It was no, we're very conservative people, and we we couldn't believe it. I mean, and I said, I don't, I never ever thought we would have this kind of 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 money to do something with. And one of the very first things I did was my dad was struggling on the farm, and we went up. And I was able to buy farm ground. And uh, so we were able to actually build a true farming operation with the money that I was making in those days. We were able to help out Jeannie's mom and dad. They were really struggling. Matter of fact, her dad every year had to borrow money from the government, would loan money to farmers. And every year his balance got bigger. So we were able to help them out. So we were really able to help our families out as a result of this money that that we were enjoying but it didn't you know it, it really didn't change the way we lived and i and i'm proud to say i have three great kids today that range in age from 28 uh, 25 and 20 and their whole life even though we've had a lot of financial and economic wealth and options we raised them the same way i mean they they did chores they they, they didn't get to, get to buy anything they wanted. If they left lights on in the house, they got fined $10 that they had to write out of their own account for, which, by the way, went into their investment account. They never knew that. They thought I was the meanest dad in the world <laughs> for doing that. But it, I've, because I've seen just how money ruins people, even the people, even when I was struggling and I would see the people that had a lot of money and didn't really make it on their own. They were some of the worst people I'd ever met in my life, and I didn't want to become them. So what happened from there? So you get this explosive growth, and you're up a million dollars of production two years later. So 
two years after that, was it two million? And two years after that, it was four million. Like, did it did it just keep multiplying? And and you're working with wealthier people. Like, it did. What, no, what it, happened from it there? did. I had I had a, I had a you know I always say the harder I work, the luckier I got. But I had a handful of of lucky breaks that happened. I mean, one was I had an executive from a company locally, one of the large, Key Witten Company, one of the largest construction company, private construction companies in the world. And they had a, they had a stock in those days called D stock and it traded from very, very limited. And it was really hard to get. And I had a client come in and, and he had like $60 million of this D stock or prospect actually at the time. And he wanted to know if I knew anybody that was interested in buying some of it. And I called my compliance department, which was LPL, and I said, "Can we do, can we facilitate this? Can we actually, if I help you, them, are a broker dealer, yeah. right? Like, and so we did, and that was so. All of a sudden, we had that the, the, that relationship. Not only did he become a big client of mine, but that led me to other clients. And at the same time, one of the people that bought some of the stock was an executive of Northern Natural." Gas, which became Enron, by the way, but back when it was really good, they then brought us in to do brown bag lunches. And we picked up a bunch of clients from there. And then that led to California Energy and MFS Communications. And I added more advisors and I added more stakeholders. And the business just flourished from there. And I mean, there's a lot of different things and growing pains that that happened along the way. But it was a result of all of the effort, time, and energy and failure that went into the business that allowed me to see and recognize opportunities and really how to maximize those opportunities. So as, as the business grew and you had to start adding advisors, hiring stakeholders, like what was that transition like for you? I mean, is is managing people and overseeing that that kind of growing business, is that a a comfortable thing for you? Were you were you happier to do that than to have to go out and and get clients, or was that still a challenge for you? Just getting comfortable with managing people and dealing with business dynamics as opposed to advisor client dynamics. Yeah, I wasn't very good at it, Michael. I I uh, one of the things that I've I think I've I've recognized what my strengths are, and I delegate everything else. And my strengths were not were not hiring internal stakeholders. But I was a really good trainer. I could take an advisor. I could mentor them. I could really help them become very successful and teach them. And I love that. I love the mentoring and the teaching and that part. But I was terrible at managing. Like when they come and say, well, I want a higher payout. I want paid more. I want this. I want that. You know, I always, always had this like, I can't believe you're wanting that thinking everything we've done. And in retrospect, they were more, more right than I was. I mean, there was, I probably never gave enough credit early on to the people that really helped me get to where I'm at today. And it really took a maturity and a level of realiz- self-actualization of what's important, what's not important to see that. So I wasn't good at it. But I didn't know how to be good at it. Similar to I didn't know how to be a good advisor, but I eventually learned. And I've really surrounded myself today with people that, you know, I focus all my time and energy on leadership and growth. I'm the visionary for the firm. I literally have two people that report to me. 
And there, and the people beneath me are people. They are they take care of. They're people that really relate to all of our stakeholders. They allow for a very really great culture, and it's because I recognize the limitations that I had as a business owner and a CEO. I think it's an interesting phenomenon. So, uh, 140 plus stakeholders, but you sitting at the top as a as CEO visionary, you have two direct reports. Who is that? Like in the org chart, who who is that? What does that structure look like? So Terry Shepard, who is our CFO and our COO, report to me, and Aaron Shaben, who runs our institutional offering, Carson Institutional Advisory for Carson Group. He reports up to me. I guess technically there's three. My chief pilot reports to me, but that's really nothing. And that's by design. A good friend of mine, Marty Bicknell, who owns Mariner, you know, he's he's got more reports than I do, but he's been a good mentor to me on, you know, not diluting yourself too much and doing a bunch of reviews and and him and I are part of a YPO financial forum group and and I'd say we've learned a lot from each other, but he's 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 been directly responsible for me having less reports. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things that is a struggle for so many of us. I was going to say as advisors, but I don't actually think it's unique to our business in particular. But that that whole idea, whenever, especially I think when we're the business owners, where you've got your hand in everything, you want to have your hand in everything. You can't have your hand in everything because at some point the business is too big and you can't, never mind if you also just don't like managing that much people in the first place. And you hit that wall where you've got to make some kind of shift and say, I got to actually have some people to help me manage the people. Like, I feel like that's the first wall. Like, once you get through that, then the layers just get deeper as the organization gets bigger. But the, the first one is like the first time you hire a person to manage a person so that you don't have to manage the person two people down. You just manage the manager. And I think, Michael, that's going to be, first of all, from my viewpoint of looking at our practice consulting group, you know, advisors get to a certain level. And if they can't make that shift, they never really break above that. They stay at the level because they have turnover and they're not effective of getting the most out of people or giving people clear direction on what it looks like long-term with their firm. And one of the things too that has really worked well for me is having the ability to share in the value, not just income-wise, but real value, letting people be entrepreneurial be you know we have a very bottoms up innovative philosophy with top down encouragement and that is a beautiful thing when people in the trenches are getting to share in the economic value that they're creating beyond their year, their salary and their cash compensation is that like a bonusing structure you do or does that mean you're you're actually open with the uh, the equity of the advisory business I feel like that's a very hot and controversial topic in our space these days. You know, should should advisory employees have access to equity or you just pay them well? Should they have to buy the equity? Do you compensate with equity? Yeah. So what, what does that look like for how you try to incentivize folks? Is that equity-based or yeah. bonus-based or something else? And the answer is yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> so it, okay. it is – so you know, you've got the cash comp and then we, we have what we call results-based pay. So we compensate people – through bonuses based on, you know, you can be a, an achiever, 
a top achiever, an elite, and there's a different mechanism. And it really has to do with your, your direct contributions to the firm, and there's very measurable ways of doing that. But beyond that, we have what we know. It's really shadow equity for about 54 of our people here. So they, they share in appreciation of the firm. There's a very specific formula of what they have to do to get it. It comes with a four-year cliff vesting schedule every year. And then I've got my core group, my executive committee of five. They actually bought, they own equity in the company. I actually had a liquidity event for so we could reinvest in the future. But at the same time, we professionalized about a year ago and brought in a private equity group. And I also had the five buy. They actually bought in, but the company allowed them to borrow from a bank that's a client of ours. And then the company guaranteed those notes. So they've got real skin in the game, but they didn't have to put a lot of money down there able to buy more of that. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges in the future is getting the right stakeholders on your team and having an alignment of incentives so they can be entrepreneurial and they don't leave you to go compete with you because the best people will if they don't see that kind of opportunity. And so is that like a giant S corporation structure to actually just facilitate that and all the carving up of shares? It is. It's it's actually my... so. People listening to this go, how does he actually do that? So there's a firm out of Omaha here, McGrath North, and there's an attorney by the name of Jeff Piricello, who is one of the brightest guys. I'll put him up against any attorney in the country. He's our corporate attorney. He designed this program where we make the grant each year, and it is whatever the appreciate if it functions like an option, but it is tied directly to the future value of the firm and its taxes, long-term capital gains tax. So it's a very tax efficient program. The thing I like about it is these awards get made every year and they always come with a four-year cliff. So if you're not, if you don't retire from here, you're going to walk away from four your, years. Your last yeah. Worth of- and when I bring people in, I tell them, this is how it works. I expect you to think of this in a life sentence in a positive way. When you, I want you to believe that you can be here for the rest of your career. And we have some people that have been here for 25, 26 years, and we've got really good stakeholder retention. So as we look at this, you got like the first six painfully lean years, you have your breakthrough on love affair marketing and going deep into this kind of referral marketing driven process, but you really enjoy training and mentoring. So at some point, did you start shifting away of like literally doing less client-facing work and more training the advisors that you had to start hiring in this business as it was growing? I would say I did less, but I never wanted to get away from it because I didn't want to lose touch with what our value proposition needed to be because I was too far removed from it. So I'm still in the trenches directly with clients and I'm still in the trenches. So you still keep like a personal client. I have a handful of clients, but I'm in client meetings all the time. And I'm on, you know, it's one thing, Andy Putterman, who just did our company retreat earlier this week, we were having a discussion because I'm in another group, YPO financial group with him. And he was talking about something. I said, all that tells me, Andy, is, 
is that you have not been directly in a client meeting for a while because someone can describe what happens in that meeting, but it's totally different when you're there and you see the body language and you see the reaction, good or bad, to something that you're saying or something that they're going through. And that shift really dictates how the business is shifting, the attitudes of people and the way they want to be, you know, we've, you know, we used to spend our time looking at performance reports and now it's outcome-based planning and what are the outcomes and what do the millennials and young professionals expect versus the old traditional client. If you're not in meetings, you're going to miss, you can't read about it. You need to be there to really understand the shift that's taking place. And I've noticed you mentioned a few times uh, YPO. What is what is YPO? I've been in YPO since 1994, and it's uh, the most incredible business. It's called Young Presidents Organization. It's an international organization. And anybody listening to this, I would strongly advise you. I just sponsored Aaron Shaben, one of my reports. He's in YPO. And for it's really a board of directors of other business owners in your community that you can, at the highest level of confidentiality, you can take any business issue to, any personal issue to, and have help. And this becomes your fraternity for life. And also the YPO group, I can call someone in Brazil and Germany and Italy, and there's business connections and people to help me get things done anywhere in the world. And for people not they qualify, and if they're not in YPO, you're missing one of the best opportunities to really grow your business, but also to have some help in your personal life. And is that you pay like a, a membership fee? I mean, is this like an association style thing? Like it is. We have FP internally yep. to the industry. You pay international dues, you pay U.S. dues, you pay state dues, and you pay local chapter dues. It's not inexpensive to be in. I was say that sounds like a lot of layers of dues. So like, how much am I in for if I want to actually be involved with YPO? You know, it's at least 15000 a year. But then if you go to any of the universities that they have, and it can grow from there. And I actually pay it for Aaron, and I would recommend anybody that's considering doing it to ask your company to sponsor you and to pay it because you will get you will get many, many multiples of the value back out of it for your organization. Very cool. So we'll make sure we put uh, something about that in the show notes as well for YPO so people who want to go and, and look it up. So again, show notes for those of you who are new to the podcast. We're on episode two here. So go to www.kitsis.com slash two. That's www.kitsis.com forward slash and just the, the number two. And it'll uh, take you to the podcast interview here with Ron and all of the uh, links that we've mentioned about Robert Chonese's book and now YPO. So, so what I know in addition to the, the Carson wealth business, you've got a, a coaching business as well that you've mentioned a few times. So when did that come into the picture? Because you clearly weren't busy enough growing the advisory business. So when, when did when did when did coaching show up? In ninety three, ninety three, and what happened, Michael, is overnight, literally at LPL, I was having this level of success, and people were like, "Can we come out and spend some time with you in Omaha?" And I was just flattered that someone would want to come to Omaha and spend the day with me. And pretty soon, though, and I didn't charge anybody for this. I just did it. I was like, sure, my you know, gosh. Your this peers is, come and ask you, and it's very Yeah. Like, this is taking a huge amount of time, so why don't I start a little business? 
charge them a little something for the time. It was it was really nominal in those days. And the more I did it, the more it grew. And like I said, today, we have 2,800 active alumni, people that still use different services here and there, and then 1,100 that actually pay as a monthly consulting fee to access our nine executive coaches and all of our tools and our electronic dashboard, or digital fortress, and all the things that can really make them more effective as an advisor. So can you tell us a little bit then about Peak Advisor Alliance, like what what kind of advisor joins? What is it? What does it cost for them to be involved? I feel like there's a lot of a lot of folks out there that are looking for places for ideas or insight or or help. So I'm I'm you know fascinated by YPO and now what you're doing with Peak. So who's a typical Peak Advisor or advisor? Just looked at the last Barons list. So about twenty percent of the top 100 are actually clients of peak. And so what we find at the bigger advisors is they don't come in and just follow the recipe for, hey, do things this way. And we have a, they'll pick and choose what they want for their business and they'll really leverage the coach. Then you've got the smaller, so we have 200 multi-million dollar advisors that are part of the program. People are doing eight, nine, 10 million dollars a year in production. So they're just they're looking for select ideas they can take home. The yes. old infamous if I if I go to a conference and I find one really good idea I can take home, especially at a business that size, like that's that's very material to the business. Yeah, or they they use our events. I mean there's a lot of stuff they say I use this every year. It just fits perfectly because I don't have to have someone else do it. Then we've got the you know the small advisor that say they're doing, you know, like me. They're not doing hardly any business. And the price point is, I can't even tell you what it is, but it's so low, it doesn't matter, Michael. It's, you know, it's, I think we have, you know, an option for a hundred bucks a month or something like that. But it's, it's, it's not a great business to be in if you're doing it to make money. It's not a, it's not a big money maker for us, but it's given me tremendous satisfaction in my career to be able to do this because I wish I would have had something like this when I was struggling to figure the business out in 19. 19- in 1983, it would have helped a lot. And so we really run the gamut from, you know, super small to very large. And we have something we can provide value to all the way in between. How is that? Like, where's the center of gravity for you today then? I mean, uh, uh, 1,100 active advisors in the coaching business is a pretty pretty darn big coaching business in its own rights. Is, Is that where you put a lot of your focus these days? Or is it mostly on the uh, on the Carson Wealth side? It's actually neither, Michael, because Laura Pearson runs Peak and she does a phenomenal job. Paul West runs Carson Wealth Management Group and he does a great job. My focus has been since 2010 is really building out Carson Institutional Alliance. And that's where I recognize, similar to the struggles I had in 83, in 2010, I was looking to the future going I see a lot of change coming in this profession. And it wasn't just the digital advice platform, but it was the buying attitudes and the way people thought about advisors and, and realizing that we were moving to a pure meritocracy and the way people would or wouldn't pay for services. And yet there's a lot of advisors out there that were still stuck in the old traditional model. They probably weren't large enough to fight off you know, the regulatory challenges, the emerging technologies that are out there, the demographic trends that we have, 
throw on top of that a fairly fully valued market, zero interest rates. I call them the four buses of destruction and disruption. And so I was like, I need to, I want to build something that advisors can associate with, but not sell their practice, but have the ability to plug in and to be part of, to have, you know, I have 38 people dedicated to research and managing the money to make those people their people. So when you look at our partner offices, they literally can get back to doing what they were doing. And that was the relationship side. And let us figure out what the offering should be. Let us figure out what the optionality for technology. Let our people do your writing for you. Let us do your websites. Let us do your blogging. Let us do everything for you so you can really get back to growth mode. And then if and when you want to have a succession solution, we can be there, but we don't have to be there. It's like an advisor relationship with an advisor. You can leave anytime that you want. And that has been the by far the fastest growing part of our business. And in many ways, it's been the most satisfying part because we've, we've really, really moved the needle with many advisors. Would you characterize that as a, as a TAMP offering and like, should advisors compare you to SEI and AssetMark and those kinds of platforms or how would you, how would you distinguish it? Yeah, it's really, it's a turnkey integrated partnership. So you think of TAMP, it's asset management. We do asset management, but we do everything else. I mean, we literally will get on the phone with your client, we'll come and do a meeting, we will we do the planning for your client. So our whole wealth enhancement group will do your planning. We do everything. And so all you have to do is meet with the client. You get you get your local representation, your local brand, everything that you do, and we literally do everything else for you. And so it's so much more than what a traditional TAMP would provide today. And how do advisors pay for that? Is that uh, like a platform fee? Is that a, do we pay basis points for the assets that are on the platform and then the rest of it is bundled in? Like, yes, is that? It, it is paid through um, asset, you know, they're on all of our strategies, run 20 to 65 basis points that the advisor pays. But a lot of our strategies don't have any additional cost because they're two or three or four basis points. That's it because we're running those strategies internally. So most of the time when an advisor associates, their cash flow goes up because we don't we we do 100% payout and their clients actually reduce the cost that they're paying. And then all of a sudden, you know, our guys are writing for US World of News Reports or Yahoo, but these these become their people when their clients go to their website and all of a sudden they're relevant in any situation in any market in any prospect that they're talking to they can compete with today. So is that the dynamic that you see? You, you've talked a lot about the, the looming disruption going forward. So you know, is it your view that going forward, like you have to either be in a large firm or at least be affiliated with a, a platform that lets you feel and operate more like a large firm? Is, are, are we on the, like the, the infamous cusp of the death of the solo practitioner? Is that where you think this goes over the next five and 10 years? Yeah, I think the, there's going to be, and there's going to, and it really hasn't accelerated yet, but it's very close. I mean, we have a, you know, the market's a third most expensive it's ever been. We, even though rates went up yesterday, they're still virtually zero. And so that's putting a lot of pressure on advisors. And if we have a 20 or 30% 
decline, all of a sudden, a lot of advisory practices aren't profitable. And clients are looking at saying, what have you done for me lately? You know, you really haven't provided a lot of value. And so they're going to migrate, you know, to those companies that have value propositions that they can they can see beyond a doubt that they're getting value. And it, while Trump may do something on the DOL, regulatory change is here for good. And the emerging technologies that you talk about, you know about, I mean, th- that is truly the tip of the iceberg. There's so much in the way that clients are going to be able to communicate and have true data to where they're even going to be better if figuring out if their advisor is truly adding value. And you you need to be p- picking your partners for the future, I think is the single most important exercise advisors should be going through today so they can be successful tomorrow. But the flip side is you are making the case, like I, if I'm out there with a solo advisory firm, like I don't need to sell my firm and just go get a job somewhere else because I'm doomed. Like platform support systems are at least a, a midpoint that lets me survive. It's just building everything from scratch on my own is the, is the problem here. Is that where you're kind of looking at this future environment? Yeah, that's, that's why CIA was born because I wanted to give the small advisor the option of saying, I don't want to sell my firm and I want to, I want to keep, you know, my brand and all the things I have in my community, but I want to have the benefits of a $9 billion or a $20 billion firm. You know, we really have the breadth and depth now of $20 billion because we took an investment in a firm in Chicago, which you probably read about earlier this year. And that just gave us 10 models of 10-year track record, gave us amazing pricing. So now we're negotiating at a $20 billion negotiating position versus a $9 billion negotiating position. And in three years, we'll be negotiating $50 billion negotiating power. And that gives you tremendous optionality for lots of things to really drive the client experience. So as you look back over this 30-year career trajectory, I mean, I, I kind of feel like there's a couple of phases. There, there's the the deep, dark, <laughs> introverted sales days that yeah. we, don't, we only look back. Now, in retrospect, I'm sure it's a lot more entertaining than it was live real-time back then. Then there's the breakthrough on love affair marketing and, and the, the business starts the hockey stick of growth. Then there's the coaching business that builds out over time. Now there's the uh, Carson Institutional Alliance platform that builds out over time. So as, as you look out over these, like, is there anything that looking back you wish you'd done substantially differently? Like any major regrets? I guess that could be the business lines or just you know, crossroads you hit in the career where I always feel like when I when I talk to successful people, you know, we tend to talk about our failures. There's two types of failures. There's the wow, that sucked, but I did learn a lot about it and ultimately it made me made me better in the future. And then there's the one which's like, no, that that was just freaking terrible and I hope I never do that again. So I'm I'm curious as you look back, are are there I guess either failures that stick out to you in, in either side of like, that was horrible, but if anybody ever goes through it, view this as a growth opportunity and, and any say that you, that you look back and just say, you know, Hey, anyone who's listening, whatever you do, don't, don't do this. Cause I, I did it. And you don't need to learn that lesson. Yeah. I have a bunch. I failed so much, but I always, I did view failure as a true learning experience. And, and so I was never afraid to try things because I realized I would learn something from it. But I'll give you some of the highlights, Michael. I mean, one, 
is I didn't have enough options early on in my career. I didn't give people many ways to win. You know, I had some lucky periods with performance that I thought I was better than I was. And I realized the market will do whatever it needs to do to prove the largest number of people wrong at any given time. And so my realization was, is make sure your strategies do what they're expected to do and make sure the client has an appropriate risk budget and they'll never leave you because expectations will be appropriate from what they're looking to do. Also, never hire cheap people, meaning if you ever think you're getting a bargain on somebody, good people are worth the investment that you're going to make. And I would always try to get people that were, you know, I thought I was getting a bargain on. You never do. I also was a micromanager. You know, I didn't, I didn't, one of my billionaire clients said, Ron, hire the best people you can find, get the hell out of their way. Um, and so that was a major failure I'd had once I did that. And I turned that, turned that switch made all the difference in the world. I didn't invest enough in technology. Today, we're huge investors in technology and have been for a decade now. I thought I needed to be a library. I thought I needed to know something about everything. I need to be a librarian. I need to know where to find it. Also, people smarter than me, which is almost everybody that I know, threatened me. And so I didn't surround myself with the best people I could possibly find. And so you know, I could go on and on and on, but, you know, Albert Einstein failed over 2,000 times. Most people, the average attempts before they give up on a goal is 0.78, which means I'd rather fail 2,000 times than never get started trying to accomplish the things I want to accomplish. And is there something that you do to maintain that persistency, right? Like, sadly, most people give up after 0.78 attempts. It's like, Failure sucks. It doesn't feel very good and it's depressing personally and sometimes doesn't reflect well on our family or peers or even spouses or like, so when are you going to go get a real job because you're, you're, you're failing at this thing for a long time? Like, is it just something about how you're hardwired that you push through that? Is it like, is there some support system that you built to get through those things? How do you, how do you deal with it? Couple things. One, I early on read a book. And many people listening to this have read it, but I would I reread it or re-listen to it every year. It's called Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. I don't care if you've got an MBA from Harvard or MIT, it's not as valuable as Think and Grow Rich for the mind and how the mind works and how if you view failure as a learning experience, you will become an amazing success at the things you're trying to get done. I have a paperweight that I'm looking at right now, sits on my desk, says you've not failed until you quit trying. I have that same message on my phone. I have the same message on my iPad. And you know there is no such thing as, as failing unless you just don't get up and try it again. So Napoleon Hill, I've got goals. You know, I set this time of year, I'll be resetting my 20-year, my 15-year, my 10-year, my five-year, my three-year. I'm just looking now at my one year. How did I do? Because when I get to the end of my life, and we're here for such a short amount of time, Michael, it's like I want to at the end say I'm glad I did, not that I wish I had. And we have an opportunity as financial advisors to make such a positive impact. Let's be the best that we can possibly be, and let's leave this world a better place than we found it. So last question then. For someone that's that's had this level of success, you know, the the growth of the business, I mean, effectively the growth of the three business lines. You know, we haven't even talked about, I know, some of the the rest of your world. You you have a, a, a plane, you fly all over the place. 
with occasionally some interesting people. I think I saw a picture last year of you on your plane with Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. So you, you've gotten to some pretty cool places. And, and so I'm curious from your perspective, how do you define success? I define success as accumulating true wealth. And I define true wealth as all that we have that money can't buy and death can't take away. And when you think about, you know, and I've seen this with people and Jeannie and I experience this as well. It's like money truly doesn't make you happy. It's having a higher purpose and making a true difference. I mean, my we started a foundation called Dreamweaver. So we do, we provide wishes for the terminally ill, unfortunate, financially unfortunate, elderly. And we did 28 dreams this year. Next year, we'll do 50. We started this four years ago. And that's what excites me. My vision is, you know, when I die, I want to have Dreamweaver in every major city in the United States to have a chapter and I want to have enough money that I can endow that to survive for a hundred years beyond while I'm here. So that's something much bigger than me. And it's vain. You know, I know it's a little bit of vainness, but I don't want to, my bigger fear is to exit this earth, Michael, and not be relevant at all or not had. And I want to make a positive difference in our profession. I really feel like our profession has not done a great job for the consumer. So I want to yeah, I think John Bogle, he's a true hero of mine. By the way, he's got a great book called Enough that I would strongly recommend as well. And if those two things are accomplished and I've accumulated these true health experiences with my, with my family, that's how I define success. Well, that's amazing. Thank you. And we'll make sure we get a, a link in the show notes as well, both for John Bogle's Enough book, which uh, I know a lot of people very highly recommend, and, uh, and Dreamweaver Foundation as well for those who want to look at, at a little bit more of, of what you're working on there. So thank you again so much for joining us today on Financial Advisor Success Podcast. I, I, I think I hope it's been an, an interesting conversation. Michael, you've been amazing. You ask great questions. This is actually, I'm looking at the time. It's almost an hour and a half. It seems like we've been talking for 20 minutes. So thank you for inviting me to be to be on your podcast. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. And again, for everyone who wants uh, some of the resources we talked about, uh, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich and Cialdini's book and YPO and some of the businesses and the foundation that Ron's created, we'll have that in the show notes as well. So again, go to www.kidsis.com slash two, the number two, and you can take a look at all of that as well. So thanks everyone for joining us and have a great day. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.